You know your heart's being made anew when his love is becoming your love. The love that he poured out, becoming a little baby and dying on the cross, gets replicated, repeated, builds up in our own heart. We begin to manifest it towards others. I again want to thank you for coming and being a part of this. Thank you, Roger. You're such a kind, lovable servant. Um, and I, I know that this is a, my, my hope and prayer is that everybody here is uh, entering into the joy of the season and the peace of the season. I also know that that is not always the case. Uh, for a lot of us, uh, this is the time of year that can be filled with struggles because it's a reminder of other Christmases when folks that used to celebrate Christmas with you are no longer here. And for some, this maybe is the first Christmas. In fact, I know for some it's the first Christmas uh, without that loved one. And um, my heart goes out to you. And I, I just uh, encourage you to let the Prince of Peace give you peace. And the Comforter comfort your heart. And the God of hope uh, fill you with hope, knowing that uh, all separations are temporary. And um, uh, just let him embrace you and strengthen you through this holiday season. I, I want to lead us in a, a Christmas reflection that goes along with this uh, truth that he came that our hearts would be, re, be made re, uh, anew. And um, that is when we're transformed into his likeness and through his love. I, I want to entitle this reflection, One Glorious Week, because it's about a glorious week uh, that happened at the very beginning of World War I. Some of you, I'm sure, are, are aware of this. Uh, there's a movie made out of it, Crystal Knock, about a, a ceasefire that took place. Before I get to the actual story, I want to read a couple of passages here. The first one, and they both have to do with peace. The first one is a prophecy from the book of Isaiah, where the prophet says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. He will be called Wonderful Counselor. Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Prince of Peace. And then there's the famous story of the shepherds out in the field, and the angel appeared to them and told them to go into Bethlehem, and there they'd find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And then it says in the Gospel of Luke, suddenly a great company of the heavenly hosts appeared, with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill towards men. Christ came to bring peace. Christ came to bring goodwill toward all people. Christ came that his love, the love of God himself, would be replicated in all of our hearts. And the clear sign that we are in fact one of God's people, that we are part of the kingdom that Jesus inaugurated, is that we're seeing that love being replicated in our hearts. On Christmas Eve in 1914, uh, the First World War had just begun several months earlier. A great battle had taken place in, in Ypres, Belgium, between the Germans on the one side and, and the British and the French on the other. And as happened quite frequently in World War I, the two sides had come to a stalemate, a standstill, a gridlock. And when that happened, both sides bunkered down and dug ditches, usually 60 to 80 yards from one another. And um, that space between them, 60 to 80 yards, between the two trenches that were dug, was called no man's land, because no man could go there and expect to live. 
And in this particular battle, the, the ditches went on for miles and miles and miles. They just dug in these ditches, and they could be there for however long. And this went on for miles and miles and miles. They estimate that there was over 100,000 troops involved in this particular battle. It was a ferocious battle, a battle that led to this uh, trench warfare. And so it had been going on for over a month that they were shooting at each other and sending artillery toward, at one another uh, while they're in these trenches. The conditions were deplorable. It was cold. It was snowy and sleet and windy. Both sides had suffered many casualties. The reports say that there's stench in the air because in this no-man's land that separated the two sides, it was filled with dead bodies from the battle that had brought them to the standstill. And if anyone tried to retrieve a body, they were shot. And so the bodies just sat there for weeks. Now, the accounts on how this actually went down differ uh, on the details, but it seems that the Germans started by putting up some Christmas trees and some decorations in front of their trench right around Christmas time. They decorated the trees with some candles. And on Christmas Eve, cold, dark night, they began to sing Silent Night, a movie that is based on this event called Kristallnacht, Silent Night. And after a while, after several times of going through that, the French and the British began to join in. They began to sing with them Christmas carols in the dark of the night on this Christmas Eve. We're told that it brought many to tears as they were just, on the one hand, being aware of how the radical contradiction between what they're singing about and the conditions that they're presently in, in this warfare, and crying because their songs remind them of happier Christmases. Over time, as they would end each Christmas carol, they moved on to the first Noel and sang other Christmas carols. Uh, they began to shout out Christmas greetings across no man's land to the other side. Merry Christmas. At one point, the Germans put a white flag on top of one of the trees, uh, signifying that they would like to have a, to have a truce, a ceasefire. Uh, over time, the British and the French reciprocated and, and held up uh, the truce flag. And then at some point as they're singing Christmas carols, someone dared to actually get out of the trenches and, and start to move to the other side, saying, holding a, a flag and saying truce. And someone on the other side then dared to get out of the trench, and then some others joined on both sides. And before you knew it, both armies were meeting in, in the middle of no man's land, uh, singing Christmas carols together, greeting each other with Christmas greetings, shaking each other's hands. And that was the beginning of what was to be a glorious week. A week in which fighting had come to an end. On Christmas Day, the two armies spent the day helping each other uh, take the dead off of no man's land and helping each other bury the dead. They held some joint funerals, and at these joint funerals they would sing some Christmas songs, and some of the folks would tell stories about the buddies who they're burying. And, and were, were some reports of that even uh, sometimes folks would weep over the enemies that they were bearing. Now that they had heard stories about uh, their life, they would weep over the realization that their bullet and their bayonet might have been the thing that put them there. Um, and the, for the next week, the two sides celebrated Christmas together. We're told that they played soccer, they traded tobacco and cognac and Chocolate and guns and gum and soccer balls and souvenirs. 
Since most uh, on each side, most were professing Christians, when Sunday came around several days into this ceasefire, uh, they held joint uh, church services. And they would sing some worship songs together and some would lead some Bible reflections. We have accounts of uh, soldiers drinking late into the night, laughing hysterically as they would shoot their guns at the stars in the sky. Uh, We have accounts of, of... both sides serving each other in different ways. One account I came across is of a barber who would cut people's hair uh, in exchange for various souvenirs. It was a glorious week. Now, not everyone was in agreement with this truce, the ceasefire. Um, we know that some had to be quarantined so they wouldn't disrupt the ceasefire. It would be very easy for, mistru- for mis- mistrust to happen and people start to shoot each other again. So they were quarantined. We know that one soldier that didn't approve of this truce was a young man who was serving in the 16th Bavarian Reserve Infantry, went by the name of Adolf Hitler. But the majority, fortunately, went along with this, celebrated this. And so, in honor of the birth of Christ, they laid down their guns and spent one glorious week together. Unfortunately, when the generals back home uh, at the base got wind of this, they were outraged on both sides. And they, both sides issued an immediate return to the fighting. And so on January 1st, 1915, the fighting resumed. And it wouldn't stop again for another three years. It wouldn't stop again until another eight million young men had lost their lives. We're told that in several locations in the ensuing years, uh, soldiers who were involved in these trench warfares would, would uh, uh, come to a truce for a little while on Christmas Eve. Um, but it was never very long-lived. It certainly didn't compare to this first truce that lasted for an entire week and involved 100,000 soldiers. In fact, the, after this event in 1914, the British... Uh, uh, implemented a policy where if uh, soldiers were ever involved in trench warfare for any length of time, they would rotate them and, and put them in different locations to prevent any sort of uh, fraternization with the, the opposite side. They didn't want to develop any sort of friendships with the opposing side that for months would be 60 to 80 yards away in the other ditch. Because they realized that the minute the enemy starts to become a human being, they're harder to kill. So I've often wondered how bizarre it must have felt to return to the fighting after you've had a week of this one glorious week of peace. How do you return to fighting after you've developed some friendships and gotten to know some of these folks? It must have been profoundly difficult. I mean, imagine two soldiers. We'll call one Joe the Brit and Hans the German. And they're both 19 years old, which was the average age of the folks fighting in, the, in this war. And so for a week, they play soccer together. For a week, they, they exchange stories and they laugh together and they cry together. They share photographs. Hans tells Joe about his, his beloved wife back home, his new wife and a little born baby, newborn baby. And he misses them so much. And Joe tells Hans about his, his ill and depressed mother back home. And she's so sad because both of her sons had gone off to war and and Joe tells Hans about his brother who had just been killed in the battle that led to this trench warfare. And how he's worried that his mother will maybe have a complete breakdown when she finds out that one of her sons has been killed. For a week, they've been bound together. They developed a friendship. 
based on their common loneliness, their common sadness, their common fear, their common humanity. They bond together. And now comes the order to resume killing. What does that look like? How did that go down? What do they say to each other? It's like a referee coming down, blowing the whistle, saying, okay, halftime is over, uh, resume killing. How, how does that work? I mean, did Joe say to Hans something like, sorry, dude, but I've got orders, and so I've now got to try to make your, your, your wife a widow and your son an orphan? And did Hans say to Joe, sorry, you know, we've had some good times, but I've got to, now I've got a duty, and I've got to try to make, I've got to try to make your, your mother go crazy by killing the only remaining son she's got. However it went down, it must have been painfully awkward. Because surely it was, it's harder to kill once you've had time to get in touch with the humanness of the other person. That's what the story that we just heard with the children was really all about. For Joe and Hans, it, they would have now been aware that the person they're trying to kill isn't a German or a Brit. The person they're trying to kill is a fellow human being, a friend. They'd now be aware of how utterly absurd their killing is because they would know now that had they been born in, in, a, in the same country, they might have been, they'd be fighting on the same fight, side. They'd be best of friends. The only reason that they're shooting at each other instead of shooting alongside of each other is because they happen to be born in different countries. Because they're in different countries and their different leaders have the beef with one another, they're commanded to kill one another even though they've now become friends. Reminds me a little bit of a, uh, one of my favorite quotes by one of my favorite thinkers. He's this math, math, mathematician, a genius uh, in the 17th century, Blaise Pascal. Yes, he's, he's brilliant. Read his pensées sometimes. They're just outstanding. And he says this. Could anything be more stupid than that a man has the right to kill me simply because his ruler has a quarrel, quarrel with my ruler, though I have no quarrel with him? We just get so used to it, we don't notice the stupidity of this. It seems normal to us. You see, like 99% of the young nationalistic warriors throughout history, Joe and Hans, they didn't understand really why they were fighting. Like, like most nationalistic warriors throughout history, they didn't research the merits of their country's position. They didn't know the complexities of all the factors that have led to the fight that they're now engaged in. Experts who study this stuff don't always agree on the complexities that lead to the, uh, the, the, the battle that, that, that folks get involved in. As young warriors, as most have done throughout history, they've just been indoctrinated to believe that whatever country they're born into is right. They've been indoctrinated to believe that, that they've got a duty to God and country to kill whoever they're told to kill because that's what you do. They've been indoctrinated to believe that their cause is the right cause. They fight for God and country. They, they're, they're fighting for the motherland. They're fighting for righteousness and honor and justice and truth and equality while their opponents, while their opponents are subhuman, their opponents are the aggressors, the evildoers, they need to die. But see, this one glorious week, this one glorious week would have pulled back the cover of the propaganda and exposed the shallowness of all those slogans. This one glorious week would have dispelled the illusion. It's propaganda that Joe and Hans, and Joe and Hans would have realized that had they been born in, in, in a different country, Hans would believe what Joe believes, and Joe would have believed what Hans believes. This one glorious week where they get in touch with each other's humanity, it, it would have revealed the truth that who your friend is and who your foe is, it's a matter of chance. So you're trying to kill someone 
because on the basis of chance, they happen to be born in a different country. That's why countries try so hard to keep that submerged and undercover because it's hard to kill just for the sake of chance. For one glorious week in the honor of the birth of Christ, Joe and Hans and all the other soldiers that were entrenched in this battle, they finally saw each other not as Germans or Brits or the French. They saw each other as human beings. For this one incredible week celebrating the birth of Christ, the the demonic absurdity of war was, was fleshed out. And for this one glorious week, these soldiers who refused to play their role as soldiers, they exposed the truth of the New Testament when it says that our battle is never against flesh and blood, but our battle is against rulers and authorities and powers of the dark world and against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. The refusal to fight during this one God-glorifying week exposed the truth that humanity is oppressed and deluded by principalities and powers that blind us by propaganda and pit us against one another. This one glorious week revealed the truth that we are called not to fight each other, but to fight the powers. And the way we fight the powers is by refusing to fight each other as the powers are trying to pit us against one another. And though they didn't realize it, though everybody is playing this as sincere, everyone's got sincere motives and the generals have got sincere motives, but though they didn't realize that the generals who usher give the order to resume the fighting, they are the puppets of the powers who are always trying to pit us against fellow human beings. But can you imagine for a moment if the soldiers, what if, what if they would have, if they just would have refused to go back to the fighting? What if they, both sides would have said, no, we're not going to kill our friends? Because it's kind of hard to pull off a war when no one is obeying orders to fight. And had Hans, Hans and Joe and all the other soldiers refused to fight and rebelled against their generals, they would have not just been rebelling against their generals, they would have been rebelling against the principalities and powers who were always trying to incite our hearts with hatred and violence to kill our fellow human being. And folks, that is actually... Engaging in that kind of warfare is what kingdom people are called to do. What it means to be submitted to Jesus is you fight the battles that Jesus fought, and this is the battle that Jesus fought. To live in warfare in revolt against the principalities and powers. We're always trying to get us to live in ways that are contrary to the character of God, contrary to the ways of God. We're called to live in a truce. The truce that these folks lived in for one week, that is the truce that we're to live in every day of our life. This refusal of the fight that they had going on for one week is something that we're to be cultivating in our life every day of our life. Paul says this. He says, let everything that you do be done in love. Everything you do be done in love. And the New Testament defines love by pointing us to Jesus Christ. First, first John 3.16, pointing us to Jesus Christ as he gave his life for us. That is how we're to do everything. So we're called to honor Christ every day of our life by refusing, by refusing to ever not love. That's what it means to do everything in love. To refuse to ever not love. Ever. For any reason. Any person. Let everything you do be done in love. And this applies whether we're talking about military leaders who are telling us to kill somebody or whether it's about our our miserable neighbor who spends their life trying to make us miserable or your miserable co-worker or your miserable in-law or some other family member that you have to tolerate this holiday season. Uh, For all of them, we are to refuse to ever not love. And love is defined by pointing us to Jesus Christ who gave his life for us. For that one glorious week, these soldiers celebrated the birth of Christ by keeping peace. 
to honor the birth of Christ, they put down their guns. That is the kind of peace that we're called to live in every day of our life. But that one glorious week, these soldiers allowed, finally allowed Christ to be the ruler who, who, who carried the weight of government, as the prophecy says. But we are called to do that every day of our life. For, for one glorious week, these soldiers allowed Christ to be the, the uh, wonderful counselor. But we are to allow him to do that every day of our life. Uh, for one glorious week, these soldiers allowed Christ to be the, the, the mighty God. But we are to have Christ enthroned as the mighty God of our life every day of our life. And for one glorious week, these soldiers had acknowledged Christ as the everlasting Father. But we're to be doing this every day of our life. For one glorious week, these soldiers manifested the truth that the angels proclaimed <clears throat> to the shepherds in Luke chapter 2 when they say, He's come to bring peace on earth and goodwill to, to all men. They manifested that truth for one week. But we who have submitted our life to Christ, we who have committed our life to following Christ and are part of the kingdom of God, our job is to manifest that truth every day of our life to all people at all times, in all circumstances, no if, no ands, no buts, no exceptions, to have goodwill towards all people, even if they're pointing a gun at us. Kingdom people are called to manifest that peace. For one glorifying week, these soldiers manifested the, 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 the truth that Jesus came to end all hostility. Jesus came to tear down the walls that bring about all hostility. Jesus came to tear down the wall of, of national divisions and ethnic divisions and socioeconomic divisions and ideological divisions to end all of that conflict. He tore down every wall. And for one week, one glorious week, these soldiers manifested that truth. But that's what we're to be doing every day of our life. To us, it cannot matter. It can matter nothing that someone belongs to, whether someone belongs to our nationality or belongs to a nation that's declared war on our nationality. It can matter nothing whether a person belongs to our ethnic group or whether they belong to an ethnic group who seems alien and strange to us. It can matter nothing whether they have the same beliefs to us or, or whether their beliefs flatly contradict ours. It can matter nothing whether they belong to the same socioeconomic class as us or belong to a different class. They're much richer than we are or much poorer than we are. It doesn't matter. We're called to live in love towards them. The only thing that matters is that they're a fellow human being for whom Christ died. They're a fellow human being whom, who God has created. They're a fellow human being who's got unsurpassable worth and that means we're to live in a way that acknowledges that unsurpassable worth, which means we're never allowed to entertain violence in our minds or our hearts or our behavior towards them for any reason. They are flesh and blood, and so they are one that we're called to love like Christ loved us and gave his life for us. They are flesh and blood, and therefore they're one about whom we're to be willing to lay down our life for them, just as Christ laid down his life for us. For every Christmas, the culture celebrates the birth of Christ, every, 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 once a year, every Christmas, we sing peace on earth, goodwill to all people. But for the most part, it's a momentary truce. For the most part, folks sing about it and celebrate it, but then go back and maybe it's not military violence that we get involved in, but maybe it is. But folks go back and we allow violence to be in our minds and violence to be in our hearts, violence to be on our words. We entertain unforgiveness and bitterness and animosity and judgments towards people. All of that violates the worth of another and therefore it's violence. 
And therefore, it's the kind of thing that we kingdom people who understand that this is not something that we're to be doing once a year, but we're called to do, live in this every day of our life. It means that those are the attitudes, and the mindset, and the behaviors that we're to put off. Every Christmas, culture does it as a momentary truce, but we're to live in it day in and day out. We who have submitted our lives to the Prince of Peace, for us, this truce is never over because this season is never over. For us, we're to celebrate and honor Christ every day of our life by cultivating a life that has a mind and a heart and attitudes and behaviors that are in congruity with the love that Jesus manifested when he gave his life for us on, 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 on the cross. And so as the worship team comes up here, and we're going to sing Silent Night, uh, which is the song that initiated them into uh, the, the, this truce on that, that wonderful, glorious week in 1914. We're going to sing it, I pray, as a declaration that this is not something we're going to do for a week, but it's something we're going to live in the rest of our life. Someday, when Christ returns, there's going to be peace on earth, and there's going to be goodwill towards all people, uh, and it will last throughout eternity. But we who have submitted our life to the Prince of Peace, we're not to wait for that to happen before we do that. No, if we've submitted our life to the Prince of Peace, now we're to manifest that peace now. Uh, We're called to honor the birth and the life and the death and the resurrection of Christ by living in the love of Christ now, by living in the peace of Christ now, by obeying the teachings of Christ to love our enemies now, by obeying the teachings of Christ to turn the other cheek now. We're to live in a never-ending truce. And that we're to do it now. A truce that ends all conflict and extends goodwill to all people, regardless of their beliefs, regardless of their ethnicity, regardless of their nationality, regardless of their socioeconomic status, regardless of whether they're a friend, regardless of if they're a foe, regardless of whether they're trying to harm us, regardless if they're just here to bless us. Our job is to live in this truce and to refuse to ever not love. And so on this season, I call on us to recommit ourselves to that core fundamental conviction. Amen. To refuse to ever not love. When we find ourselves entertaining attitudes that are not loving, that, ha- that violate the worth of another, and worth is always defined, remember, by the fact that Jesus died for them, then we're to set that aside and ask God to fill us with his love and to make new our heart, make new our mind, renew us, so that we can love like Christ loves. So we can give like Christ gives. Because folks, this is what the Christmas season is really all about. It's not just what God does for us. It's a life that God invites us to participate in. So let's stand and sing the song that the troops sang that brought about their peace. But for us, it's not for a glorious week. It's for a glorious life.
Praise God. I, I pray that. Uh, I thank you again for being a part of this. It's really an honor to celebrate the Lord's birth with you. I pray as we leave this place, I'll just end with this benediction. I pray that we go out of here. We're in, going into a world of conflict. And I pray that the Holy Spirit keeps our heart clean and pure. We don't get drawn into the conflict, but rather, God, give us the wisdom. Wisdom of love. To be peacemakers. Uh, God, give us your love. God, that is based on who you are and not based on who we see, the merits of the person we come in contact with. God, make us like Jesus Christ. And as we go out into this world of conflict, I pray that we would be a kingdom people, that we would be a beacon of light, that we would be a source of love in the face of hatred, uh, of, of peace in, in the face of conflict, uh, that we would be a source of grace in, in the face of judgment, and that God's love would pour into us and pour through us to our families, our neighbors, our friends, our coworkers. Tonight, tomorrow, and throughout the upcoming year, refuse to ever not love in Jesus' name. God bless you guys. Love you. Go out and love on the world.